Okay, let's just use get one clean one. Let's be quiet for a sec. Hey, uh, you won't be attending that hat convention in July. Chris, all I want to do with you is just play Nintendo. Do you think we're going to have trouble making Hudson Hawk sound like a good movie? We blow up space shuttles for breakfast, Sean, okay? Talking about Hudson Hawk will be a late afternoon Trisket. At the, uh, the end of this, as the proverbial car goes off the cliff, I'm just going to yell, My pension! You know what this episode's going to make you feel like, listeners at home? It's going to make you feel like you're naked, sitting in the back of a Cadillac with Sean and me, eating microwave sushi. This feels like uh, Veja Do. Hold on, I just got a delivery at the door. Reindeer goat cheese pizza! Two more minutes. I was nearly there. Oh, man. This is a family podcast. Uh, You know what we're going to do? This was an R-rated movie that had some swear words in it. You know what we're going to do if we accidentally say some swears, Sean? I have the perfect way to bleep them out for us. Is it Simon? For those of you listening, Chris is holding up a brightly colored circular electronic children's toy branded Simon, which I did not think existed past the 80s. Don't you think Simon should be an acronym? Maybe it is. I think as a a good comedy improvisers, we should come up with one off the top of our heads right now. Simon stands for Synthetic Intelligent Monitoring of Non-Adults. We're watching your children. I would also like to point out for those uh, listening at home who have not upgraded to our our video package that at the bottom of the screen, Chris is identifying his, his image here not as Chris, today you are calling yourself Butterfinger. That's right. Hey, this is France, Sean, and they better have French fries. That's what I'm saying. Okay? I'm a real purist about Europe. Ah, to be in Paris and in love. I actually thought Butterfinger, when I I rewatched it, was portrayed by Brian Bosworth. Remember Brian Bosworth? Oh, that's the hair. The hair was the giveaway. That must have been the hair. I mean, that was the era... Uh, was this like the time of like the the Jim McMahon uh, Chicago Bears and their Super Bowl run? Because that was that was the hair back then. Uh, this Mike Ditka, uh, the fridge. If, if we go to the video level and people subscribe, you can always get a good look at Chris looking completely terrified anytime Sean makes sports references of any kind. Who Brian Bosworth is. Yeah, because he was in a movie. Exactly. He was in Stone Cold. He's famous. Yeah. But when you started saying the the run of the Chicago Bears, I live here, but I don't know about that. saying that in some, some parts of your fair city if you don't know the famous Chicago Bears of the, uh, the mid-'80s. Yeah. Well, I don't run in those circles. You know, I'm, I'm Just concerned to... now that we've watched Hudson Hawk, and today's film that we are discussing will be Hudson Hawk, is that – it will now negatively affect my Netflix algorithm. Like Netflix is going to think 
I want to watch more movies like that, and that concerns me. <laughs> okay, so since we're bringing that up, let's go there. What are movies like this? What are other movies that fit the algorithm? What do you predict it will recommend no, that's to That's a great question. Uh, well, they'd all be from the 80s. That's for sure. Um, go ahead. I'll, and we will see. I would suggest that this is actually quite a 90s movie. Really? Well, I say that because, well, first of all, the, the decade always carries over by a couple of years. So anything that is made in 90 or 91 is still going to feel like an 80s movie. But this one also seems to fit in the category of what I would call the mid-90s failed, have-it-both-ways, blockbuster self-parody movie, which to me includes things that the, uh, the algorithm... I, I would imagine the algorithm recommending to you something like, you liked Hudson Hawk? Perhaps you would also enjoy Last Action Hero. Oh. You, 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 you liked Hudson Hawk and Last Action Hero? Perhaps you would enjoy The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. It's kind of an action movie. It's kind of a parody of action movies. You love those movies so much, Sean. Surely you want to sit down and watch Escape from L.A. That was hilarious and chock full of incredibly expensive action. And it was a beautiful mix of both of those things. Now, All of those were. So this was in the 90s. This was, what, this, 91? 91. All right. Well, maybe it was filmed in, <laughs> filmed in the 80s. But that is very true, though, with the, you know, the production process and so on. And it was probably written yeah. in the eighties. Yes, it was written. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was written. It wasn't written down. It was written. It was it was uh, dictated. Hudson Hawk is a movie that one of its biggest laughs and crowd pleasing moments is the murder of a dog. Was was that a crowd pleasing moment for you? It got a big laugh. I, I saw this. I was very, very excited to see this. I saw it opening weekend. I dragged a bunch of high school friends. And there were laughs. Um, some of them were laughs that were only achieved amongst my uh, cohort of ironic, nerdy teenage boys. But there were some things that made the theater laugh as a whole. Hey, what is the, I, it's, I, I just, to be, I watched, I finished watching the film Again, just a few hours ago, I've already forgotten the name of the dog. What is the name of the dog? Uh, Bunny. Bunny the dog. Why does Bunny have a credit, an actor's credit, um, portrayed by someone else? Bunny is Bunny is performed by a trained animal. Some of those really good trained animals, you they have a name and you, they appear in multiple films. Did you see The Edge with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin? Uh, the bear, yes. Not only, not just the bear, Bart the bear. Bart gets a special credit at the end. Special thanks to Bart the bear. He was very well trained and he came out at the Oscars that year, Bart the bear. But, but, he, no, like it was an act, like the dog in the credits was portrayed yes. by someone. Frank Welker. You know who Frank Welker oh, is? You know who Frank Welker is? Of course you do. Yes, you do as well, but you don't know his name. You've heard, yeah, he's a famous animation guy. Um, he, he pops up, when you, like, when you would watch old Hanna-Barbera cartoons and a, um, a crow would fly over and you needed someone to be like, to do something with their voice to sound like a crow. Now, what I just did was terrible. 
Uh, but he knew how to do things with his voice. He plays the the knife that Alec Baldwin has to fight in the shadow, and it just makes these little high pitch like. I can't make my voice do it. There, so he's a, the growling of the dog in Hudson Hawk was by a human voice actor, Frank. Yes, Walker, by Frank Welker. Megatron in the Transformers yes. cartoon when I was a young man. Really? Yeah. Well, because right at the end, uh, Hudson Hawk, I'll call him, what should I call him? Eddie Hudson Hawk. Uh, Hudson Hawk says, Bunny. And Bunny goes, and then he says, Ball, ball. And then he gets launched out of the uh, castle. So, so, I mean, there was the big dog um, actors union strike where they've, back in the early 2000s and that now humans can't do that anymore that was yeah they they were not good boys they should have kept uh, working for the studio astonishing that uh that this was the case i i was really confused by that thank you for for answering that frank welker wow yeah well they needed a bit of a performance they didn't just they needed the sounds of the dog to do exactly what they wanted so frank welker is a go-to guy yeah I wonder if he's still alive. We'll look that up. Uh, we'll tell you next week. I went week. to a comic book convention within the past um, few years, and Frank Welker was there. Now, are you saying he was the voice of Scooby-Doo? Because I thought it was a guy named Dale Messick. I'm assuming you were about to Google this. Maybe you know, Scooby-Doo has been around for so long, uh, I'm sure many people. You know what? He might have done a variety of other voices. He may not yeah. have been Scooby. He might have been... Without looking it up, maybe Shaggy or Fred? Oh, you know who Shaggy is. Come on. Sean, I'm counting down the ten reasons why you should be embarrassed not to know who Shaggy was voiced by. Casey Kasem? You're gosh darn right. I was nearly going to swear and make use of the flint ring, but uh, I corrected myself. That was Casey Kasem. I still listen to Casey Kasem on 80s on 8 on Sirius XM. And he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's yeah, do they broadcast the old uh, just American yeah. Top Forty Countdown? Uh, now such I will. A smooth... I, I don't think I ever knew that. Really, Casey mm-hmm. Kasem. What was your relationship with this movie? I had the soundtrack. I played the video game. I have more confessions to make about it, but I want to hear from you. When when did you know about this? Did you go see this it? This was when one I would it? have seen on home video. So I had a friend who worked at a convenience store as a clerk and he would close the store down and his his relationship with the owner was such that at the end of the day if there were any movies left over that no one had come to rent vhs or beta then he Mm. could take it home for free and watch it and then he just had to make sure it was brought back before the store opened the next morning and he lived up the street so often he would call me and say come on down i'm going to close the store we'd pick out a couple movies from the shelf that people hadn't uh hadn't picked out that particular day and then we would go to his place and watch them and Hudson Hawk would have been one of those one of those movies and I remember being excited about it uh, because it was Bruce Willis and um, I don't recall disliking it at the time boy I would have been in uh, in high school yeah uh, so was I, I you would have been about yeah, 16 uh, a young uh, boy. Yeah, I was 16, 17 years old. And uh, boy, um, I don't actually recall 
I, I feel as though that I should have been old enough to realize it was not a good movie. Um, but if you didn't, then wasn't was it bad? If you if it didn't occur to you to think this is bad, I don't like it. To me, was the, what's wrong? The, the swinging on a star is the oh. iconic moment from the film, and that has been on playlists of mine for several mm-hmm. years. I play that at at parties. Um, it's on my playlist when I'm driving at work. I think it's it's fun. And I think maybe I just got caught up in that. And I've not seen the movie since it came out on home video until this week. Until for this recording. I, now, I decided, and I'm, I'm very happy I refreshed my memory. And uh, <laughs> I, I didn't watch it beginning to end. I did it in three, in three viewings. I, I chopped it up into pieces because, you know, life happens. And uh, okay. yeah, it's, um, there were times when, there was a, a moment when I was in, we can get to when that is in the film where I, I was really enjoying it. And then it was ripped away from me with a oh. horrible, horrible moment. And uh, so I was speaking to someone today and they were asking what I was doing. And I said, Oh, I'm watching Hudson Hawk. And, and mm-hmm. he said, Oh, well, is it on TV? Why, why are you watching Hudson <laughs> Hawk? And that was the moment I related to him. And he said, well, how does it hold up? And I said, no, it doesn't hold up. And I said, you know what? There was a scene that I liked. And then it got bad so quickly after that. Um, at yeah. the end, when the credits were rolling, I wanted to say for nostalgia, I liked it. I'm having Go a ahead. time getting there. Yes. Uh, Leonard Maltin summed it up perfectly in two words when he referred to the movie as blissfully incoherent. It doesn't know what it wants to be. And yes. it... it I mean, there's like a Three Stooges moment at the end. Um, it it's really confusing. It's like you they've took they've taken so many genres and they sat down and they wanted. They think they were very ambitious. They wanted to make a great movie. They wanted to be entertaining. They had a lot of ideas and they just decided to keep all of them. I would say here's my take on it. Um, because I know, I feel your pain, and I had some of that same reaction to it when I first watched it, that, you know, I, I wanted to like it more than I did. It was not the movie that I was hoping for. Uh, it is a movie that is very definitely and very defiantly. Often my students use those words interchangeably in movie, in movie papers when they should not be doing so. But this, in this case, both words apply. It definitely and defiantly uh, is doing what it wants to be doing. Um, and not necessarily what you want, but it, it does feel like it is at war with itself. Right. So it, 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 the Genesis, do you know how this got made? Like, do you know where it came from? Is it a a Bruce Willis passion project? Was this something he pushed through? Yeah. This is based on a song that he wrote with a buddy. So when he is like a bartender in New York city, when his big break is like, I'm an extra in the movie, The Verdict with Paul Newman. And I'm sitting in the, you know, uh, in the stands in the courtroom. I'm trying to get a career going. And he's waiting tables and he's playing harmonica at bars. And he meets this other musician bartender named Robert Kraft. And the two of them just basically like are screwing around and improvising. And they create this little song that's a tribute to the cold wind blowing off of the Hudson River. 
and they just create a little story around this guy, Eddie Hawkins. And they say, yeah, one day we'll make that into a movie. One day you and I will both be famous and we'll make this into a movie. And they're just sort of spitballing ideas at each other. And then Bruce Willis makes Moonlighting and then Die Hard and then Die Hard 2 and is suddenly such a huge celebrity. And he's suddenly equal to Stallone and Schwarzenegger, both of whom have been around a lot longer. You know, Stallone makes Rocky in 1976, right? He, I think Bruce Willis is already kind of feeling his age. You know, he's in his late 30s, mid 30s at this point, making Hudson Hawk. And he's like, I, I got to do it now. I, I am hot now. I don't want to wait any longer. And, and also he'd had an album. He had a, a popular, a relatively uh, popular I, I album. I remember the album. Yeah, The Return of Bruno. He fancied himself someone who could sing and play harmonica and had kind of a character. And he was like, this is me. This is what I bring to the table. It will be fun and bouncy and musical and charming. And it will satisfy my action movie fans. It will be single? something for everybody. What was the big single from that? It was Respect Yourself, right? Wasn't it a cover of Respect Yourself? That is correct. Thank you very now, much. Now, did he take yeah. on the persona of Bruno when he performed on stage? I didn't do. I did not do my homework. Do you know the answer I to this? It I, seems, I think he might have. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a character that he's created. But then again, it's like if the guy's called Bruno, um, it's not that different from Bruce. Uh, you know, it just sort of seems like a heightened Bruce Willis, right? Which is kind of the Bruce Willis persona across the diehard movies and here, you know, like the, the wisecracking guy, come on. We know, Hey, another guy, another building, another Christmas Eve, another bunch of terrorists. Hey, I'm talking to myself. I can make myself laugh. I have Googled the album cover. It could be Hudson yeah. Hawk. Yeah. Uh, tight yeah, yeah. black t-shirt, a uh, bit of a knowing smirk, arms crossed, staring, uh, staring out at you and it, it could be mm -hmm. Hudson Hawk. Now the song that plays over the end credits. Uh, yes. It, Dr. John was, was that written by, by Bruce Willis? He, I believe he gets credits, Robert Kraft. Well, let's find out. I'm holding the soundtrack right here. Oh, is it on the soundtrack? Hudson Hawk theme written by Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft. Yeah. Bruce Willis gets, the credit co-credit for writing the theme song and co-credit for the original story. Whatever happened to, I presume this is not Robert Kraft, the multimillionaire owner of the new England Patriots. No, it is not. No, he did end up having a career. Um, he worked in music in the industry and this was kind of like an amusing footnote for this guy, but he was a talented enough musician that he worked for 20th century Fox in the music department and had a, had a full career as did Bruce Willis, right? This was, you know, this movie kind of became its own legend and people wrote about how the budget was getting bigger and bigger and they wrote about it. They loved writing about this celebrity who was being vain and was taking over control and was kind of telling the director what to do. Bruce Willis was a big celebrity. The producer, Joel Silver, was a big celebrity. Um, you know, he had made a bunch of big 80s action movie hits. Um, this is the guy who directed Heathers, isn't it? Exactly. That's what I mean when I say this is at war with itself. A, a, a small, low-budget, quirky, cult, dark, dark film. What a strange choice. 
we're going to do yes. this huge, big budget, uh, uh, you know, pick for, for Bruce Willis, but we're going to get the guy that did Heather's. I think in this case, it, it was that that guy came with the writer of Heather's, that the two of them were a pair. And Heather's has a very good script with a very sharp, kind of sick, twisted sense of humor. And you can see why Bruce Willis would say, like, I kind of want Hudson Hawk to have some of that feeling to it. Um, so, you know, the two screenwriters credited for writing Hudson Hawk are Daniel Waters, the sole screenwriter on Heather's, which is this quirky movie about teenagers killing themselves and manipulating each other into killing themselves. Um, and flat out just killing them and making it look like they killed themselves. So very, very dark uh, and funny. But also it was co-written by Stephen E. D'Souza, who was Joel Silver's go-to screenwriter for movies like Die Hard, Die Hard 2. And I'm sure you will be able to quote something from this movie, the words of, of Stephen E. D'Souza as written and performed by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. My 12-year-old son came in at one point, stared at mm-hmm. it, looked at me and said, what are you watching? And this was towards the end where um, uh, Tommy and, and Hudson are uh, assaulting the Da Vinci castle, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I guess uh, so. They're making their uh, siege. He said, you know, this is fun, but stupid. <laughs> there you go. As you say, you know who else are fun and stupid, Sean? The Three Stooges. Oh, it, it, there were even Three Stooges sound effects in that scene at the end. Where like, yeah, not just in it. Yeah, yeah where, where um, James, James Coburn um, beats the crap out of Hudson Hawk to the point mm-hmm. where um, he's in some kind of repetitive motion, bobbing <laughs> up and down. They used to have those little toys. It was like a yeah. bird with a long neck, and you would tap it and it would bob up and down into a glass mm-hmm. of water and right. and his character is doing that after he's been given this this punch or kick and it's making the hinge yeah. right out of the three stooges and that that yeah. really caught me off guard because i did not recall that but Bruce it's Bruce very Bruce silly kind of guy who loved the three stooges that didn't surprise me yeah 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 uh the even when he smacks the two guards' heads together during the first heist in the movie, there's like a coconut sound. Yes. Punk. Yeah. Smacks the two heads the together. House. Yeah, at the auction house. Yeah. Do you think there are auction I would... houses entirely dedicated, by the way, to just doing horse art? <laughs> that was a particular showing. That that made complete co- coherent sense. Oh, it was They're like having a special showing. An exhibition of. Age de questioni, horse things. <laughs> yeah, that's the special occasion. It was not a. It was not a horse. Really, it was not auction house equestrioni Age. It was just an auction house. But um, yeah, I, so I used to describe it to people and saying like, imagine if a guy from New Jersey decided to make a Monty Python movie. Like, hey, I'm just as good as Monty Python. Here, here's your Python right here. I'm holding it. I'm taking a leak with my Python, you see? So I, I will set you up for this. Hmm. Give me your most cringeworthy moment. And then okay. your, your highlight. What was the part of the film that you, you truly enjoyed and thought was, was well done and entertaining? So cringeworthy. We're going to go bottom to top here. Cringeworthy first. Yeah. 
Okay. I, I can, I vividly remember as a kid, 16 years old, really excited for it, feeling a, a kind of cognitive dissonance when I realized this is not exactly what I was hoping for in my head. It's much sillier and, you know, less coherent. It's, it's not as tightly st- structured as a screenplay. Um, and I remember being really disappointed that there was not a third heist. Uh, with a movie like this, it promises you're going to get three heists. I quite liked Swinging on a Star. I thought that was a very good opening. I thought it starts well. Uh, I liked the chase on the Brooklyn Bridge. And then the second one at the Vatican, I thought, okay, well, this is okay, but don't worry, Chris, don't worry. The third one is coming. And of course, that's going to be the best because they're saving that for last. And so when we found out in that apartment in Rome that the CIA crew had just assaulted and murdered many people off screen at the Louvre. Uh, Now that's the Louvre in Paris, Sean, not the Louvre in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I remember thinking, oh, I have just this horrible sinking sensation. I mean, like, what are we going to get? And instead we get this really like, very, very silly sequence of the people paralyzed from the neck down and trying to like blow, uh, trying to fight people by blowing air at them. Uh, and I remember thinking this was, I, even at 16, I was like, they ran out of money, didn't they? This is the most exciting thing that we get instead of a third heist sequence. We get these people, not only are we in a small set without a, a, a heist, they can't move. They're just moving their heads back and forth and wiggling their bodies. That's when I thought, oh, this really, this really isn't what I wished that it was. I have to, if I'm going to enjoy it, I have to see it for what it is. But my favorite moment, I thought, I did like the opening heist, and I really like the chasing on the Brooklyn Bridge afterwards. Oh no! And no, I did. Oh, no. I thought that was, I thought that was perfect. I thought that was exactly the yes, I did. I really thought that was I thought that was the perfect combination of the silliness and the action that it was big and expensive. They actually shut down the real Brooklyn Bridge to do this and the being stuck on the gurney and having the gurney connected to the ambulance by just the one uh, flimsy sheet and then grabbing the cigarette randomly that the woman throws away and is like, "Ooh, menthol." And then, you know, I was going to make this another one of our catchphrases for the opening of the show. In fact, we can edit it in. Uh, hey, do you have any questions for us about the direction of the podcast? Call 1-800-I'M-GONNA-FUCKING-DIE. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah. And the woman, the woman just pulling next to him in the car is like, hey, mister, are you going to die? Convertible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that to me was like, that was the Venn diagram merging into the eclipse of this is really silly and unique and it's still exciting and fast paced and has, you know, good action movie music. Whereas like, if it can sustain the swinging on a star and then this throughout the whole movie, I'll be happy. Was that, so a top and, 10 gurney chase then in your book? Yeah, I thought that was a really, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, can you name others? There's one in Moonraker. There, I watched it a couple days ago, and the one in Moonraker, not as good as Hudson Hawk. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, there should be like, this year's a, a recipient of the Golden Gurney. Oh. Uh, yeah, well, this movie, so I, I looked it up. This was a Memorial yeah. Day weekend movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a year after um, Die Hard 2 is huge. 
Uh, I think that's July 4th, or that's later in the summer, but... So, it got its ass kicked, Memorial Day. Uh, so, do you know what it came out against? Did you look this up? I didn't look up the exact opening weekend, but I know it was around the same time as T2. So, <laughs> Uh, I do not see that on the list. It might have come out. Was that a was that a uh, Independence Day weekend film? T two maybe was a little bit later. I know Thelma and Louise and the Doors were out Thelma around Louise now. Came out uh, the same day. same weekend. Um, okay, and then uh, Backdraft. Wow, and Backdraft made a lot of uh, a lot of money, but the number one uh, film. That month was what? What about Bob? Oh, I saw that in theaters. <laughs> I saw that at the Eglinton. Remember that theater, Canadian listeners in Toronto? Uh, that shame on you, Toronto, for letting those movie theaters disappear. Yeah. So it it did not. This was a bomb. This movie uh, did horribly uh, domestically. Uh, but movies like this always do well internationally. These go ahead. Wacky international. So. That includes Canada, doesn't it? No, the domestic includes Canada. They treat Canada as a Canadian. It 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 would, you know, affect me knowing that because uh, international movie audiences sometimes like really mm-hmm. really strange movies. I mean, they like those Asterix movies. You know, Is there more. They, they got a. Oh, they make it a bunch of those in France. There are Asterix movies. I loved yeah. the comics as a kid, but I've stayed away from any. Mm-hmm. any live action uh, uh asterisk and obelisk adventure. Yeah. they don't they don't cross over to other countries and france doesn't need them to they're very successful in in france and neighboring countries presumably belgium luxembourg i suppose this did not hurt but Willis's yeah. career in any way whatsoever it was an embarrassment briefly but he got right back on there what was you know i mean what, 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 what would he have done after this uh last uh boy scout last boy scout oh probably probably by the end of the year that comes out pretty soon afterwards that um i didn't like the last boy scout um yeah it that does not hold up i like that in theaters i typically don't like tony scott movies but it was a shane black script to me it also had some memorable lines uh you know i think i fucked the squirrel to death and nobody told me yeah, that's a good line. Uh, yeah, you know, the was, kids. It was the same year. Yeah, by Christmas, right? Uh, and uh, interesting. So yeah, and Billy Bathgate, he had a big nineteen ninety one. Yeah, I mean, he's just—he's too lovable. So had like he we done the bonfire and the vanities at that point. Yes. Bonfire yeah, that was nineteen ninety. That yeah. was before this. That was it. Was 90, 1990. Yeah. And then he is miscast. Um, in in that movie, that's not that is not a good movie. I keep trying to give it another chance, and I can't get through it. When uh, was the player? It must have been after this. It's after this. It's like ninety two or ninety three. Yeah, I was well into college. That's when uh, Bruce Willis played himself, and mm-hmm. and you know, it's it, here is Bruce Willis. Here is a big, big budget Hollywood movie star dumbing down a movie according to wikipedia die hard with a vengeance was like the number one movie in the world in 1995 well if it's on wikipedia it's true that's just, it's good enough for me I've every i mean every time i see it i can't quite believe it but 
they must be referring to some fact or some, hopefully some person would have taken it down. Did we give the actual box? Yeah. No movie made more money than Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995. According to Wikipedia, yeah. It was either the biggest movie just domestically or the biggest worldwide. I would imagine the latter because movies like that make so much money overseas. Are you looking that up? I'm totally looking it up. Okay. So while you're looking that up, my memory of the numbers for Hudson Hawk is that the movie cost about $55 million, and in the United States and Canada, it made 17 and so it was considered to be a punchline, but around the world, it made like 80 more, and so it turned a profit, you know? It sold some soundtracks and Nintendo games, and it sold the cable, and it sold some VHS tapes. Just because Alliston, Ontario didn't rent it out on one particular evening, I'm sure it still, you know, got rented. So, uh, you, Die Hard with a Vengeance is barely in the top ten, 1995. Oh, maybe somebody, maybe somebody just wanted to be nice to oh, Bruce hold on, after hold he. Hold on, sorry. The list I'm looking at is in chronological order. <laughs> so. I'm looking at films in order of their release. But when I see January in Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumber was yeah. a huge movie, but uh, all right. I was not looking at the, uh, I was not, I was not filtering properly. Um, Towards the end of the second paragraph at the start of that Wikipedia entry, it says it became the highest grossing film of the year. Yeah, there it is. And Three, I would say 300 and 366 million dollars. Now, that's a movie that capitalized on Pulp Fiction, right? You've got Bruce Willis and Samuel Jackson one year later, and it's more uh, fun for the whole, well, almost fun for the whole family. It's more conventionally entertaining than Pulp Fiction is. And so, yeah, it's got their camaraderie, their buddy dynamic is a big, big reason why that movie is so popular. I'm going to tell you a story, and... When I I know that I was planning on telling you this story about my relationship with Hudson Hawk, I genuinely don't know whether we will end up cutting this out of the episode or whether this will be some charming thing that we refer to and it becomes a runner. But Hudson Hawk was a movie I was very much looking forward to throughout January, February, throughout the winter and spring of 1991. I knew that the makers of Die Hard and Die Hard 2 we're making a heist movie. Okay, so this is going to bring it back to the reason why we're doing this podcast. I was like, I like Die Hard and Die Hard 2 very much. And I like heist movies very much. I, I remember telling you I was a big fan of that robbery at the start of The Return of the Pink Panther. I was like, this is incredible. That can't go wrong. And I remember very being... Quickly, how are ahead. you getting hyped up in 1991, 1992? Uh, for, for, ahead of time? Is it Entertainment Tonight? I am a fan of Premier Magazine. Premier Magazine was incredible. If you're listening and it doesn't mean anything to you, Premier Magazine had an era where it was like the Rolling Stone for movies. And for a while, it was, it was a peer. Uh, it was this really, really big, physically large magazine, beautiful, really, really detailed and well-written. Um, and they would try to get um, big-name writers. Mm -hmm. Martin Amos had this really lengthy piece about the making of RoboCop 2. They were like, let's just get Martin Amos, this incredibly well-respected British novelist, to come in and talk about the making of RoboCop 2. And so, yeah, they had like industry information 
ahead of time. Um, the, the, I'm going to say woman, uh, well, maybe I'll just say my girlfriend, my girlfriend at the time in high school, I remember she was with me. We had gone to see something at the Cumberland four in Toronto. We were both students at our high school in downtown Toronto. Uh, I think I can say I went to UTS. It doesn't, that doesn't like invade anybody's privacy. Um, so we would go see movies downtown and, did you ever see anything at the Cumberland? Was the Cumberland Do you know the, the one behind the uptown? Bloor Street? Oh, no, no that backstage. was called the Uptown. That was called the Uptown Backstage. Yeah, the Cumberland was in Yorkville. Oh, but yeah, the, yeah, it was. It was. I uh, definitely saw films at the, uh, the Cumberland. Yeah. It tend to show slightly artsier films, not necessarily the big budget stuff. Definitely saw yeah. films there. In fact, mm, uh with the only film I can think of off the top of my head, um, Ian McKellen, Shakespeare, uh, Richard the Third. Yes, I think I think we. I may have been with yes, you. Yes, it was like set in like the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties. They did like a different spin on it. I saw it at the Cumberland. I think you and I saw Nixon there. I think we probably did. That was relatively close to our apartment walking distance. And maybe we saw Das Boot. They, they had like the longer version oh, of no, no, it. No, I do recall that. Yeah. But so you might recall that they had like this really long alleyway yep. separating. Yeah. With the, and so with the movie posters. Down, down that's side. exactly what I want you to picture. I want you to picture that. And that was another way that you would get excited because normally when you go to a movie theater, they have movie posters saying coming attractions, right? for you know what's going to be coming up in the next like two months or so but for whatever reason i think also the famous players offices in toronto were nearby uh the cumberland movie theater and so they had they had this incredibly long long alley and they had all of these places to hang movie posters with the light up display behind them and so you would see poster after poster after poster for all these things that were months and months away and so I would see the poster for Hudson Hawk. And I remember telling my girlfriend, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Oh, that's Hudson Hawk. That's the new heist movie from the people who made Die Hard. And the poster is the way that I found out that Michael Kamen was writing the music. And I really like Michael Kamen because he did Die Hard and Die Hard 2. But I really, my favorite movie is Brazil. He did the music for that. I thought it was really good music. He did The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Anytime I saw Michael Kamen, I was like, this is going to be good, interesting music. And I saw, oh, he's doing the music for Hudson Hawk. All the more reason to get really excited. And I remembered, you know, my girlfriend at the time, you know, like typically people that I date like me and they seem to like it when I am happy. And so they find it cute and charming when I get giddy and childish and, you know, school, school girlishly excited about silly things like that. Oh, did you like your little mood? Did you and your friends have fun going to see the new sweet little James Bond? You know, they say cute patronizing things like that. Um, and so um, I, you know, when I went to see it, she said, hey, did you like it? And she could tell that I was a little disappointed. I was like, well, you know, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Like I, I couldn't give it an unqualified rave, you know, saying, was it, you know, did you like it as much as you expected? Was it good? I was like, well... It was kind of interesting. I kind of liked it, but I was also kind of disappointed because it wasn't like the tight movie um, that I thought it was. But the story part that I need to get to is that the girlfriend that I had at the time was older than me. I was 16 and she was 18. 
I was in grade 12 and she was in grade 13. Before she dated me, she had spent two years dating another guy, two years of her life. Did you have those relationships in high school, those people that were just like in a romantic relationship that just seemed like they were going to be together forever yes, and everyone was kind of in the whole thing? Yeah, just like these high school sweethearts. I had a crush on this on, on this woman and I kind of I kind of enjoyed having a crush on her, even though she was older. We were in a school play together, all of us. And I said, it's fun to have a crush on her because nothing can ever happen. She's basically married to this guy. And this guy was a very eccentric person. Uh, he was in the Canadian military. He was a cadet. He wore a suit and tie to school every day and played the bagpipes at, Memor at, at Remembrance Day in November uh, every year uh, with a kilt. And so, and she was also sort of like a very serious person uh, for a high school student. She spoke three languages. She ended up going to Harvard and she ended up breaking up with this guy who was also serious. He was into history. He was in the, in the military. And I remember thinking like, I am a child compared to these people and I have very childish tastes and passions for life. And I, I'm very flattered that this, this woman is dating me, but it seemed very strange. Oh, and the other thing was, this, she was into languages. She spoke fluent French and German in high school, and she had a German exchange partner. She spent some time in Germany at her family's, you know, like an exchange. And then the, the, the woman came over and my girlfriend, her, her first boyfriend cheated on her with the German exchange partner. And it was this huge scandal. Oh my gosh, these high school sweethearts, this couple that's destined to be together, this bastard ruined it. He was a very arrogant person with a, a very kind of like cruel sense of humor, kind of a jerk. Um, and he had cheated on her. But she stayed friends with the, high with the exchange partner. And when I was dating her in the summer of 1991, she went to spend a few weeks in Germany to hang out with the exchange partner. Now, Hudson Hawk comes out in 91 in May in North America. But by the time my ex, uh, my, my, my then girlfriend was visiting Germany, Hudson Hawk was playing in Germany. So she went to go see it with her exchange partner. The two of them went to see it together. And I remember finding it like I just associated it with my own virginity. The fact that like this, this woman that had been together with this man for two years, this military man, this man that has an affair, that cheats on her. And she's such an adult that she stayed with him for a while, even though she cheated on, uh, he cheated on her. And she stayed friends with the other woman. This was all so adult and sophisticated. And so the idea of all these adult, sophisticated people uh, watching Hudson Hawk together, these two women saying, you know, like, we are friends, even though we have both been with the same man. And now you are with a new man. What is he like? Tell me about this new man. Well, he liked the movie Hudson Hawk. And so maybe we could go see it. And this will be a way you can get to know about my new love life. Like, this man, you should not see this man. And he, this is a childish man. Is this man an idiot? What kind of, you, you are normally with men. This is not a film for men. The idea of imagining the, the two women um, watching this movie and then trying to extrapolate from the movie something about her new boyfriend uh, gives me, was, was, even then I knew the joke was on me. I was like, this is embarrassing. 
but what can I say? I'm the kind of, I'm a 16 year old little boy who likes Hudson Hawk. I'm not in the military. I don't cheat on people with their German exchange partners. I'm not adult and sophisticated and have affairs, but I was nice and sweet. And I liked this goofy movie. And I enjoyed the idea of these two sophisticated, we have affairs with people and we cheat with each other and it's no big deal. And he seems like a sweet little boy, I guess. I don't know. So. Well, I'm happy that them seeing the movie contributed to the big international audience that Hudson That There you go. That's the thing. It's like the woman came back and told me the story and she said, I have to tell you, I didn't like it very much. But it, it, I think it was because of the way Bruce Willis was dubbed into German. I think the person doing Bruce they? Willis's voice, what? How dare they? I know Bruce Willis into German. It does seem like the type of movie where you don't want to read subtitles while you enjoy Hudson Hawk. You know, you want to lose yourself in it. So let's talk about the heists, Chris. Go ahead. Okay, let's get there. There are two. There's the yeah, I'm afraid. House, and then yes. there's the Vatican Museum. The yes. auction house heist is very simple, um, but what makes it is the song, and yes. that is the shtick. That is the best part of this duo. These two thieves, mm-hmm. these cat burglars, is that they are music aficionados, and they know they have a mental catalog of every song and it's running time and if the song has been performed by two separate artists they know it the running time by that particular artist and i can't recall uh what the one is because uh, they're trying to the, there's is it a whitney houston one they said well one of them tries to stump the other tommy says hey what about the star spangled banner whitney houston super bowl 86 and bruce was like seven minutes 43 seconds get the f- out of here as if they were making but they're like um mac the knife do you want to buy so-and-so or do you want to buy sinatra Sinatra. it's completely synchronized and they know where you know exactly where they will be based upon that i mean the old uh synchronize your watches in this case is the two of them singing and it also gives the actors the opportunity to uh show off their they're singing chops, which I'm sure is not a coincidence, especially with uh, with Bruce Willis. But Danny Aiello, hey, he holds his own there. His singing voice yeah. uh, is great. Uh, it's, his, it's his Italian heritage. It's his birthright to be able to sing, to be able to belt out a Sinatra-style tune with confidence and swagger. That's just that's just the nature of his talent. Yeah. Uh, they they hint that uh, when they're going to hit the auction house, Bruce Willis is just literally out of the joint that day. Uh, they're going to rob a place that night. And he asked, well, do we know any of the guards? And Tommy says, no, no, we don't know these guys. And and Hudson says, oh, I can't believe it. So part of their success, you know, they're neighborhood guys. Uh, they know the guys who guard their targets. And maybe that's how they've been successful in the past. But this is an auction house. It's uptown. And they don't know the people running security. It's not their crowd. So they actually have to, to break in. And I'm trying to recall, they go in as pool cleaners. That's correct, across the street. The sign says no horseplay. That's right. And then they use a, uh, a life preserver from the rooftop mm-hmm. pool, and they throw it across the alleyway, 
and uh, I oh, there's a sound effect. Ding. Yeah, like in the carnival when you uh, when something hits a bell. I can't remember which yep. one of it, which one of them throws the life preserver. It's Danny Aiello. Danny Aiello and he, he's still got he it. Puts it over like a flagpole or something, and then pulls it tight, mm-hmm. ties a knot, and they they climb over. Uh, but of course, mm-hmm. uh, they are then doomed because Danny Aiello uh, wants to cover their tracks, so he takes mm-hmm. the life preserver and throws it back to the other side and says, "Well, we're going to go out through the basement." And of course, mm-hmm. well, now we have no choice, do we? Things don't go as the as well as they had planned once they get into mm-hmm. the auction house. But really, we don't really see how they gain access to a lot of these secure areas. They're just going. I guess the rooftop door is is open, is unlocked. No, no, we see them cutting the glass. He uses the glass cutting circular um, compass machine device oh, and has to make it a bit bigger for. Going through the boardroom, hey. and he makes fun of Danny Aiello because he's gained weight yeah. while Hudson has been in prison. And he asks him, he's about to start cutting, and he says, "Well, I yeah. should make this wider." Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll make the circle a little bigger. Hey, uh, shut up, bonehead. I'm wearing my girdle. They bring skateboards, yeah. and then they go in, and they stay low, and they're able mm-hmm. to get past the guard room because the guards are looking out through the window, and they don't see them. And then they go into the uh, the security uh, control room where all of the video, the video cassette recorders, the VCRs mm-hmm. are located. And Danny Aiello explains, does he not explain to Hudson Hawk like this is new technology that he's unfamiliar with? Yeah, basically, yeah, I think so. We're basically going to make a loop, which is such a a common thing in in these. But But it it was new. In Hudson Hawk, it was new. Speed does it in 95. I think is it 95. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're ripping off Hudson Hawk. But when Hudson Hawk did it, it was new and clever. You're on a roll. Yeah, uh, you want to keep going? They, they get into the main exhibit hall. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the video feedback loop has been set up. So the guards have, uh, have no idea what's happening because they look at the monitors and everything seems to be fine. Uh, they are able to, uh, to find the, uh, the safe. And he gets yeah. through that safe very quickly. Um, that's usually like there are entire movies about breaking into a single safe and Hudson Hawk, we, who they do say is the best cat burglar in the world, gets through the safe right. in about 10 seconds. And I think he's even having a conversation with Danny Aiello about something else at the time. And he simply opens it up and reveals the uh, the the statue, the equestrian statue by uh, by Da Vinci. But what does them in is uh, the feedback loop. Poor, I think it's Stan. Fat Stan. Fat Stan, yeah. the security guard, had been sitting on a wooden chair in the exhibit hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, he breaks the chair after the fellow guards pull a prank on him, and he they wake him up too abruptly, and he he shatters, he shatters it. the chair. And unfortunately, Tommy was unaware of this, and when he sets up the video feedback loop, it has the chair uh, in the mm-hmm. image, and one of the guards in the security room eventually notices that the chair is uh yeah. is still there and that's when they sound the alarm and uh there is uh, is trouble for our heroes and then it goes from a heist just to a, a chase yeah i thought that was clever actually using the goofy joke about the chair as a way to build suspense because the joke is quite silly you know the guards are very silly they're reading the number of wongs in the phone book 
to kill time because they're yeah. bored. They're night they're nighttime guards. And one of them says, "Oh, three hundred and fifty-two Wongs. That's a lot of Wong numbers." And then the soundtrack makes that little quintessential reference of the of the um, the xylophone. The dung 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 dung. Why is that associated with China? Do you have any idea? You know what I'm I talking know exactly about? Exactly what you're talking about, and I have no idea. I, I don't know where that comes from. I assume it's racist and I'm just referencing it. This is the type of movie that will make these little quotations. When, when Leonardo da Vinci is trying to paint the Mona Lisa, finish off the painting by adding the teeth and he can't find the right woman to, that has the right teeth to finish the painting with the smile. Do you, do you hear the little, da, da, dee, da. you know that tune? Have you heard that tune before? Da, da, dee, da. You've never heard that song? Hi. Maybe I have. I, I'm not getting it from from what you're. <laughs> you can right if, you using context clues. You could probably guess the song is called Mona Lisa. There's a song called Mona Lisa, and so the soundtrack when we see Mona Lisa, we'll just play Mona. We'll just play da 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 da. So there are all these like little Mad Magazine references in the score, and there's a tiny split second one in the heist. But uh, yeah, knocking down the chair is a goofy joke, but then having the chair be reconstituted in the original footage and just sitting there in the background, it's there for a few shots before the guards notice it. And it's there long enough that the audience can notice it and say, wait a second, the guards are watching, but the chair is broken and I see the chair again. And so the, the movie gives us a little bit of credit to find suspense in that and be ahead of the guards and be like, oh, Hurry up, Hudson Hawk. The guards are going to figure out what I have figured out. So I thought that was a good combination of genuine suspense and a goofy joke. Did you hear that? Yeah. How did you find that? What, it, did, what racist thing did you type into your search bar that now the algorithm will say, Sean likes racist humor and 90s self-referential oh, postmodern wow. parody. Wow. A, a really quick rabbit hole with this one. Um, but um, so the song Turning Japanese by oh. the papers, big hit. Okay. It uses yeah. that. So I looked that up and it says it uses what's known as the Oriental Riff, um, oh, also God. known as the East Asian Riff, or perhaps the most unfortunate one, the Chinaman Lick. Uh, oh. It is a, <laughs> not surprisingly, it's a Western creation. Yeah, thank God. The the first known example um, is the Aladdin Quickstep uh, from 1847, used in an Aladdin uh, stage show. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff here. I'm not going to read you. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it has been used basically for like 180 years to be a stereotypical sound effect to set something oh. up with like an Asian. Uh, background and yeah completely yeah. western in its creation 180 years so this is like going back to like vaudeville gilbert and sullivan or something or yeah yeah just, 18, yeah 1840s. Just, oh yeah. wow well so there you go it was tradition what can we what can we say so, it so was, that was you know. the first heist chris tell us about the second yes. heist because i well, like the me... second heist a lot okay I will say it's interesting that you don't mention the end of the first heist because I that was that was where the movie lost me as a 16-year-old boy. It wanted to see a heist movie made by the people who made Die Hard and Die Hard 2. 
that Tommy and Hudson Hawk jump off the edge of the building and land on the awning. The awning, of and, course. Yeah, and, but rather than show how they actually survive, like how do they land? They, we, see them, we see the awning slowing their fall enough, but the movie doesn't actually show the complete action. Instead, we get a transition to Hudson Hawk plopping himself down on a chair at Gates' apartment his uh, parole officer saying, here you go. I've got the, I've got the object for you. And I remember thinking, that's not what I want. I want an action scene to have action scene logic. And you took away the climax. You ruined the ending. But to the wrong place. Exactly. Like it's, you know, I, I bought the special edition Blu-ray of this movie so I could hear the audio commentary. I could watch the deleted scenes. um, And I enjoyed all of them. And the director said like, this was a very deliberate mission statement. And people in the test screenings had the same complaint that 16-year-old Chris had. And the director's attitude was, well, duh. I mean, we deliberately took that away. We're deliberately mocking this convention, this cliche. So, um, yeah. The, the second heist takes place in the Vatican. And Eddie has been told he needs to get a codex, a big book full of notes, that is on display. And we do see he cases the joint beforehand, which allows us to get some sense of planning. The first heist, we don't see any planning for it. We hear them talking about it in the abstract, but we don't get any particular details enough to get us anticipating how they'll have to handle things. They're just looking at their tools and and reciting the length of songs. This one does not have a musical number. It does not have Danny Aiello in it. Um, and so as a result, you know, it doesn't have that same charm, but maybe it's a good thing for the movie not to be repeating itself so much. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but nevertheless, we see, I do like the, the little girl, the American girl with her stuffed doll, Pokey, the elephant. The um, yeah, we get a nice joke about him. We, we get we get a bunch of fun jokes in this movie about Americans in Europe, right? As much as this movie is itself a crass American production of American people going to Europe and kind of ruining Europe by being too much of a big American movie, there are lots of jokes about the, the, the fact that that's exactly what they are doing. Hey, I, you know, I'm so Hudson Hawk filmed it on location. <laughs> at the Vatican? Well, in Rome, uh, at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's... I was worried, oh no, this is going to be on a soundstage somewhere. It was in Rome. They filmed in Rome. They shut down the Brooklyn Bridge. This was an expensive movie that bombed in the United States. It eventually made its money back, but the money is on the screen, right? There's always something to look at. This, this doesn't look like anything else. And so we get this elaborate um, chandelier, uh, this sort of metal angular chandelier hanging over the, the codex, Da Vinci's codex in this rotunda at the Vatican Museum. And Hudson Hawk says, I want to find out, he says to himself, huh, how do we activate the security? What happens? And so there's this annoying little girl, what's she, like 12? Yeah. Just taking, just beating the crap out of her stuffed elephant pokey and then looking at Hudson Hawk and just sticking her tongue out at Hudson Hawk. And Bruce Willis has this great, like, horrified reaction. And Courtney, uh, the little girl's mother, says, Courtney, you're embarrassing your country and pulls her away. And then we just get... Um, an off-camera shot, just out of nowhere, suddenly a little stuffed elephant is floating through the air 
and triggers the security. The chandelier turns out to be an elaborate gate mechanism that collapses from the ceiling, crushing the poor elephant. Gas starts coming out of every direction. And uh, the little girl is quite upset and people run away. And so Eddie uh, makes some notes and he writes down, I need some olive oil. I need 10 bucks worth of stamps. I need uh, some fisherman's, a fisherman's friend. So ideally, the, the joy of Hudson Hawk is we get the anticipation of the heist. Here are some problems he has to solve. But then we also get tantalizing tidbits of he's being creative. He's getting some strange items. And as much as the CIA find him annoying, uh, they do say, make that list happen, Almond Joy. Get on it. And Butterfinger is very proud to say, I got the stamps for you, Mr. Hawk. And Hudson Hawk says, good, Yogi. It is. I do recall it. It is an unusual list of, of items. Now, do you yes. get the impression that the heist that he carries out is exactly as he planned? Or when he encounters the blue wire, mm. does he have to call an audible and change the plan to involve the missing painting and the guard? Oh, the missing painting. He, well, he when he encounters the CIA and he gives the yeah. list to the CIA and they're going to help him with the heist, carrying this out for their own purposes. <laughs> Kit Kat. David Caruso yeah. as I know uh, yeah. the mute CIA agent master of disguise <laughs> speaks through handing out small cards that have exactly yes. what he needs to say typed on them as Hudson is leaving, hands it to him, and it says, watch out for the blue wire, or something to that yes. effect. beware the blue yes. wire. And then, as he's about, he's examining everything, underneath the codex, it looks like a mm-hmm. pressure plate. So perhaps as the, the book is lifted up, the pressure plate will be triggered and will, will sound the alarm. And it has a blue wire. And, and he even says out loud, oh, Kit Kat, how did you know that? Or something along those lines. How did you know about that blue wire, Kit Kat? So is, does his plan not eventually, does it not take that into account? Because he he stops the lasers. Um, yeah. He, he defeats the laser grid. And he's about to remove the glass case. And that's when he, he kneels down and he looks underneath it. And he sees that additional sensor. And then it cuts to the guard. Who is yeah. entering the upper gallery? Who comes in? He's saying everything is clear. He then looks over, and a painting is missing. What has happened? I thought that the painting was not a painting. I thought that was one of the reflective surfaces that he has taken out of the frame, and he's using it as a reflect. I thought it was just a big fancy mirror. I don't remember the missing painting oh, is that, that what as, it as is? being Those a painting. Are two mirrors he's taken, and then he's yeah. them together to defeat the laser grid. Oh, but he sees that the mirror is missing because it's just an empty yes. frame. And then he rushes right. down and sees the apparatus that Hudson has erected. Yeah. And then by the time he gets to the bottom of the stairs, Hudson has slipped to the top of the stairs and calls out, hey, yeah. and then uh, uses the fishing rod to mm-hmm. reel up the glass case and the book, thus triggering the yes. pressure plate underneath it. And trapping the guard in trapping the guard in the uh, chandelier cage. He would. I don't he knew there was a something to do with the blue wire, but he did not know specifically what the blue wire was. I didn't get a sense of any surprising change in plans while I watched the sequence. If anything, it feels like 
Hudson didn't need the help, that he already saw the blue wire and was wondering how Kit Kat knew because Kit Kat was never there. I know where the blue wire is because I already cased the joint, but how, how did you know Kit Kat? Well, I, mean, I don't know because it, it, it feels more like Kit Kat just wants to be like Hudson Hawk because when he gives him the card, he's dressed like Hudson Hawk. He's mimicking all of his movements. It just seems like he, Kit Kat is this sad little character who wants to be cool. After, he, after he's mortally wounded, he has a card that he gives to Andy McDowell, the the nun, and says, I always liked you. He also has, you know? when he dies, he has like a hundred cards that like spill yeah. out onto the floor. And you can, you never see what the others say, but they're all, they all That's true. typed on them. Like he had something yeah. for every occasion. He's ready for anything. Yeah. See, I like that, um, that heist scene a lot. And then he makes the escape up through the window at the top of the gallery. And he's pursued yes. by the guard onto the the tile rooftop of the Vatican Museum. I, I liked him knocking over the TV antennas and interrupting the Pope watching Mr. Ed dubbed into Italian. I enjoyed the heist, and I was thinking, you know what, this isn't that bad. And then he, he goes off the edge of the building onto the mm-hmm. lamppost, and from right. the lamppost onto the the hippie bus truck with chicken yes yeah coming along the street with a luggage compartment with chickens and then from there he ends up falling off of it and landing Mm -hmm. in the seat at the cafe around the corner where he was supposed to meet andy mcdowell's character for their date and she just looks at him and says nice of you to drop in and he opens his mouth and chicken feathers come out and it just ruined it that ruined it so you and i had parallel see i think by this point in the movie i was accepting that the movie was doing what it was doing because both of them end with a sudden thud a splat right you're falling into gates's chair in gates's apartment or you're landing in this chair you know i remember finding that kind of a cute gesture the way that he like coughs his hand open he's got his fist in front of his mouth to cough and then like a magician he releases all the feathers and creates the little cough full of chicken feathers to entertain Andy McDowell. I am I am a sneaky boy. I am silly. I am a I'm clowning for you to amuse you. That I I found charming. Um so I was gonna say it's a movie at war with itself. I'm surprised you didn't quote anything from Commando when I said this is written by Stephen E. D'Souza. Like you don't remember Commando one liners that wasn't big for your childhood? I, I'm quite familiar with Many, many one-liners from from Commando. Okay, yeah. So Hudson like, Hawk's Thunder with Commando. Okay, but I I bring it up to say, um, I mean, I want our audience to know, like, this was written by the guy who wrote things like, "Please don't bother my friend; he's dead tired," or, you know, like that's it's Hudson Hawk was written by somebody who wrote a bunch of great '80s action movie one-liners but it was also written by Daniel Waters and it feels like a movie that is at war with itself. It feels like a movie that is combination of a a typical eighties action movie and some quirkier, weirder, more satiric thing. And the more that I think about it and the more that I try to defend it, the more that I realize that that is actually the point of Hudson Hawk, that that is actually the coherence of the movie that it's like, a traditional New York East coast guy getting caught up in the world of the Mayflowers and the Mayflowers are very campy and quirky and strange. And he has to navigate this world. And so he's like, 
I have this type of value and I'm lost in this world that is really over the top and crazy. And so I have to thread the needle and make my way through both worlds. Uh, we're up against the clock and we haven't even got into Richard E. Grant in Sander Bernard. Holy. Yeah. Hell. What did you make of them? <laughs> um, they're brother and sister, are they not? I, you know, I keep forgetting. It's never revealed. They're, they're introduced flicking tongues at one another yeah, it, and they are revealed to have taken photographs of themselves in sex acts with their butler. Their butler. And so the fact that the movie makes it unclear whether, they, whether their relationship is incestuous or not also is a good indicator of the type of humor, yeah. the sense of humor of Hudson Based Hawk. upon the sense of humor, I just presume they were brother and sister. Yeah, exactly. Uh, campiness. What does it mean f- to you, Sean, to say this thing is campy? When's the last time you used that expression? This is a campy I don't, movie. But it, to me, that is, um, it's not a, it's, it's what my 12-year-old said. It's, it's stupid, but it's fun. But campy is a bit more specific, right? Can't, like, st- stupid is stupid and fun is fun and campy is like the old Batman show. It's intentional. It's, yeah, that's the way. It's, this was not. This is not an unintentionally funny movie. Uh, this is exactly what they wanted. Uh, yeah. they looked at the finished product and they said, "Mission accomplished. We did it. We did yeah. it, everyone. Bravo!" Uh, yeah, yeah. And th- this is the the film that they wanted to make. It's in some ways, it's kind of like a '90s big budget Pink Panther movie. You know, yes. it has the kind of silliness of the Pink Panther films. And yet there are also some genuine suspense sequences in some of those Pink Panther movies. And you're meant to be laughing and thrilling at at those. But this one, but those were also meant to be sexy. Those Pink Panther movies, they were sex farces. They were meant to be very like crowd pleasing and kind of heterosexual, kind of like Playboy magazine. They always had like uh, attractive women in them. You go back to the first woman there, the first woman, sorry, the first Pink Panther movie. And they had like um, Claudia Cardinale, all these beautiful women. But here instead we get Sandra Bernhard, who at the time was Madonna's girlfriend and had done this incredible one-woman show uh, turned into a movie, Without You, I'm Nothing. She was in um, The King of Comedy in a very small part, but very striking and memorable. And she, yeah, I think the fact that it's unclear if they're lovers or brother and sister shows like, they are not meant to be traditionally heterosexual. There's meant to be something kind of gay and campy about this and ironic, you know, in the way that like something campy is criticizing the pop culture around it. Campy things are gay and ironic and exaggerated over the top and flamboyant. And this movie is kind of that. And in some ways, I think they, they kind of win for a long time. They take over the movie and the movie fits their style and there can't be world, and Bruce Willis just has to put up with it. This is a disruptive movie. These guys are disruptors and weirdos, and for a while, the movie is kind of on their side. The movie is as extreme as they are, but at the end of the day, conservatism, tradition, East Coast values, and Bruce Willis uh, one-liners in New Jersey and New York, they will save the day, and, and they are considered to be more traditional. Like he, Bruce Willis is associated with Da Vinci, little known artist. This is a movie about like style. It's a movie about style, styles of art, it, craftsmanship. It, it, it had a, a really long 
Yeah, prologue with dimension. Yes, like easily. 10 That's to crucial. Minutes long. Yeah, and again, I did not like that at the time. I was like, get to the cool stuff, get to the modern day. Why am I watching this? But the movie is saying, no, 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 this matters. Da Vinci is just this guy who's trying to be inventive and creative and be a really good artist. He's a little known artist. He's got this cool machine. He's got this cool hang liner. He's got this interesting painting he's working on. And he's meant to be kind of like Eddie Hawkins, right? Eddie is a guy who's really good at what he does, but then the, the Duke of Milan tells Leonardo da Vinci what to do. I want you to create this big, campy, over-the-top, Baroque bronze horse. And Leonardo da Vinci is really put upon. He's like, oh, I guess I got to do this. It's about style and Hudson Hawk saying, I'm going to return to a traditional style. I'm going to navigate the world of campy, decadent excess and action movie exaggeration. But at the end of the day, the style, the classical style of Italy, Da Vinci, it will win out and I will be like that, an Italian guy. That's my take on it. I think that there is a surprisingly coherent movie about navigating clashing styles of art. Gates, there is a good joke at Gates' apartment. He's like, well, I don't know about art, but I know what I like. And Hudson Hawk looks at the dogs playing poker on the walls. like, yeah, you certainly do. You know, like, it is... It's a, it's a world of certain people are hip and certain people aren't. And yet campiness is more hip. The, the Mayflowers take over the movie and they, we kind of are with them for how extreme and crazy they are and how they're making the movie their own. So the, the movie being at war with itself is the coherence of the movie. That's the subject of the movie, how we are pulled in different directions uh, in terms of good taste or bad taste. And we're meant to sort of be bewildered, but also delighted by the, the tour through modes of art, all the architecture, all the beauty of Rome, you know, that does matter. It matters that they put all the extravagance on the screen. You know, that's the best case I think you can make for it. I don't, I don't know if it's, if my take is completely coherent, but I think that's the best case you could make for it, having its own point of view and going for it. I, I think you saying, uh, I don't know if this is coherent, is the perfect way to describe Hudson Hawk. Next time, we're taking mm-hmm. a very different approach, and you have selected a film for us. I have. Which We have not hinted. Which I have never seen, and mm-hmm. I'm going to enjoy, I hope, watching it. You... I, you will. Right. You will. It, it, it is as traditional as Hudson Hawk is extreme. For all the ways in which Hudson Hawk is out there, this is a straight-ahead, quintessential heist movie. All right. So because this is 30 seconds flat, mm-hmm. uh, I am going to have you introduce our next episode's film, and you're going to have 30 seconds in which to... Uh, talk about the film and set us up for the episode which will follow this one and what i'm going to do is as a final tribute to hudson hawk i'm going to count down in italian from uh, from 30 i do not speak italian and i will do the best i can i've already mentioned the chinaman lick tonight so if i haven't uh offended enough people this will now be my my next opportunity so are you ready uh, Chris, I 
I'm ready for you to get canceled for your offensive Italian American. All right. Uh, well, uh, uh, I'm yeah. about to count you down from Toronto. Go. All right. Our next film is Rafifi, a classic heist film from 1955, directed by Jules Dessin, the blacklisted American filmmaker working in France. And it's very simple and classical. A bunch of guys have to break into a jeweler's, but they want to get into his safe. And the safe has this incredible new technology in France. It's called the sur alarm, the super alarm. And we have to figure out how to defeat it. They have to get one and practice it. And the heist sequence is 20 minutes with no music and no dialogue. It's incredibly nailed. Time is up. Boom. We did it. Zero is zero, Anton. Ah, I thought you were going to ask me to do it in French. I thought that was going to be your punishment for me because I, I drowned out your setting up Hudson's